Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we like to talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and your host. I've always had a soft spot for 1989's The Little Mermaid. When it came out, I was just getting seriously into movies, and The Little Mermaid kicked off what would become an animation renaissance for Walt Disney Pictures. It led to the likes of Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and others. So given my affection for The Little Mermaid, I, like others, was a bit skeptical when I heard the announcement that it would be the latest to be remade as one of these live-action-slash-CGI hybrid remakes that Disney has been giving us lately. So think of Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast here as well, and Mulan. Once again, like others, I wondered, was this necessary? Could it possibly live up to the original? Now that this new version of The Little Mermaid is available for digital purchase, it's also going to be on Disney Plus September 6th, I wanted to explore these questions with Catherine Freeman and Sarah Welch-Larson. Before we get to that, a quick note about the TC Movie Club. We have scheduled our next session, the one for the fall. It's going to be on Monday, October 23. At the height of spooky season, we're going to discuss horror. What is it good for? To be part of that, you can sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Now, this will be jumping off my new book, which just came out, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. So you can see where I fall on the subject, but come join us even if you're skeptical about horror. Different perspectives always make for a more robust discussion. And given that horror isn't for everyone... TC Movie Club member Amber Noel had a great idea for this session. She emailed me this. I have a thought for the Fall Movie Club. I think horror is a great idea. If you do horror, could you provide a suggested watch list with some kind of intensity rating scale? Mild, medium, spicy? I would probably be in the first category. I love this idea. I think it's really great. So here are three horror films to consider, each of which I do discuss in my book. Choose to watch one of them, or if you have time, fit in all three before we do gather on October 23, and we'll discuss these titles. We'll also discuss horror in general and how the genre might be fruitful for Christians. So here are the titles. The Wolfman from 1941, I'm going to call Mild. This is one of those classic universal horror films, an easy entry point for the genre. Medium? Let's go with something like Jaws. I think Jaws is a good creature feature. Most people have already seen it. We can talk about and think about it as a horror film as well. And then if you're brave, if you want a spicy suggestion, I would say A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, the slasher film that does, fair warning, get pretty gory, but I think has a lot to discuss. So we'll touch on those titles. I'm sure other horror titles will come up, as I said, as well as the genre in general. Again, to receive an email with a Zoom link to join us for that gathering, just sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Okay, let's shift from horror to children's films. Here are Catherine and Sarah to talk Disney remakes. What the Little Mermaid, a tale of a rebellious daughter, has to do with the notion of Christian obedience and much more. 
Welcome to Catherine Freeman and Sarah Welch Larson, who are joining me to talk The Little Mermaid. This is yet another piece of pop culture that stands on the shoulders of a previous piece of pop culture. For better or worse, we live in this landscape fueled by IP and nostalgia. So that means, you two, we have to start with 1989's traditionally animated The Little Mermaid before we can get to the 2023 film. Tell me, Catherine, was that 89 version, was that a touchstone for you at the time, or is this a movie you came to later in life? No, I, I remember watching it at the time when it came out. I think it's so interesting because that like run of movies, like starting with Little Mermaid and then sort of Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Aladdin sort of rejuvenated Disney. I feel like maybe like young people won't remember this, but there was a time where they kind of had lost themselves and it was just the theme parks. And um, yeah, the early the 1989 Little Mermaid was kind of the beginning of their renaissance as we should say so I remember I loved it I love the songs um I love the talking animals uh, particularly Sebastian I have great memories of the first one that was an exciting time for Disney animation you're right it was kind of barren the years leading up to that and then it really launched this exciting period how about you Sarah what are your memories of it I was not a Disney watching kid when I grew up. So I think I'm pretty sure I've seen The Little Mermaid in its entirety twice, including the time that I watched it for this episode. Um, okay. I, just, I did not grow up on Disney Renaissance. We watched The Aristocats and we watched Cinderella. And I think I saw most of the other ones sort of embedded in between at friends' houses or when I was babysitting when I was a little bit older. But sure did not grow up on them. And it was one of those things where it was kind of reasoned with um, the kids in Disney movies tend to know better than the parents do. And so we don't want that undue influence on our own children. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was kind of the, um, I don't know, the cultural landscape that I was approaching Disney movies with when I was a kid, because I didn't question it because I wasn't going to question my parents either or their wisdom. Of course not. And so, um, yeah, I I knew of The Little Mermaid. I knew of a lot of the other Disney movies at the time. Um, and I knew some of the songs, but they weren't something that I necessarily like considered to be a big part of of my makeup or or something that I was thinking about a lot as a kid. Okay. Interesting. So two, maybe three times you've seen it. I've probably seen it 30 times at oh, least. Oh, wow. And that's because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the 90s, by the time, um, so I would have been, you know, in high school dating Debbie, my wife now, she has four little sisters. Mm. And so I think almost every time I would go over there and sometimes we would end up babysitting them as well. The Little Mermaid was on repeat on VHS. So yes, very, very familiar with the 89 version. And and I do have I do have a lot of affection for it. Mm. So so now 2023, we get this Little Mermaid remake from Disney, part live action, uh, part computer generated imagery. It did have a theatrical run in theaters over the summer, early summer. It's now available for digital purchase and is coming to Disney Plus on September 6. Sarah, let's start with you. Maybe this movie had more leeway with you than the two of us, perhaps, if you didn't have as much of a history with the original. But either way, what did you make of the 2023 version? It probably doesn't help that I rewatched the 1989 version shortly before I watched mm. the 2023 version, because both were very, like the first one was very fresh in my mind when I was watching the second. 
And yeah, I there is a level of forgiveness that I'm willing to extend to it because I don't feel that sense of nostalgia. It doesn't feel like any piece of my childhood is being messed with. But at the same time, so much of what the 2023 version is doing is it's essentially trying to prop up and shore up, uh, pardon the pun, things that um, the first movie doesn't really consider to be all that important. And it feels like it's trying to, the 2023 version specifically is feels like it's trying to give a lot more purpose and reason to the characters who are kind of secondary. I know that there are some critiques of the original Little Mermaid where that people will claim Eric isn't really much of a character. Like Prince Eric doesn't really exist except to be a pretty face, which is fine. I don't think he needs much more motivation than that necessarily. Um, and every time the 2023 version tried to give additional reason for being for the characters beyond the 1989 version, I kept thinking like, it's almost as though they're trying to give a foundation to a sandcastle and everything felt like it was starting to fall apart more because I was <laughs> examining it so much more and thinking like, why are we even giving this thing a purpose and a reason? It was perfectly fine in the original <laughs> movie. So not very forgiving towards this one. Sorry. <laughs> Did you need to find forgiveness in your heart, Catherine, for this version, or were you okay with it? No, I was okay with it. I think I look at all of these like live action remakes as totally separate things on their own. Mm. I mean, honestly, none of them. <laughs> I'm like a Beauty and the Beast girl, like in Aladdin, and I just feel like to compare them to each other is kind of like comparing the Harry Potter books to the Harry Potter movies. Like uh, the book is just better. So I feel like to be fair um, in the reimagining, and I try to think of them as how they stand alone kind of on their own. And I will say, I definitely think the Little Mermaid live action is was much better than the Lion King or the Aladdin one mm -hmm. um, in that sense. And yeah, I agree with the backstory. Uh, it was a little jarring that Prince Eric had so much screen time. <laughs> <But> <laughs> jarring or, or boring, did you say? I, I, I missed that. Um, I, thought, I mean, it was just jarring. I just <laughs> felt, I, yeah, I feel like they were trying to like give his character this sort of... Um, like sort of awareness about maybe like his immense privilege and sort of pushing back against that, but in ways that beyond mirroring Ariel don't feel very significant or meaningful, mm -hmm. um, more performative, I would say. Um, okay. But I did enjoy the songs except for that one rap. Um, oh, yeah. Yikes. The scuttle oh, what's something? What's the scuttlebutt? I think scuttlebutt. Something? Yes. Terrible. I'm sorry. If you have David Diggs voicing a character, he is the only person who should be rapping. I just, <laughs> that was just, I just have to blank that from my mind. Uh, yeah. I think it's probably best if we move on. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> Well, I'm fascinated. Well, first of all, we should mention Jonah Howard King plays Eric. We've been, you know, maybe we didn't think he was the strongest point in the film, but we should at least mention his name who played Prince Eric. Um, you know, I am so fascinated by what you said, Catherine, about the Harry Potter books to movies. I had a bit of a revelation with this, and I haven't seen every remake, live action remake they've done, but Little Mermaid gave me a bit of a revelation that was similar. I found myself comparing or starting to think about these as the versions of these movies we see at the theme parks, the live stage versions. And when I go into one of those, I haven't been to Disney a ton, the theme parks, but enough. I think I saw a live version of Beauty and the Beast, which is my favorite 
Renaissance animated film. And I remember going into that just intrigued by it. I wonder what they're going to do with this. I wonder how the songs will sound. I wonder how the characterizations will be. But I didn't expect it to be as good as the movie. And I didn't come out of it angry because it clearly wasn't as good as the movie. And I wonder if that's how I have to start thinking about these live action remakes. You know, just lower the bar a little bit. And as you said, Catherine, think of them as entirely different things. I think that's why, while I can't say I entirely enjoyed This Little Mermaid, I did find things about it I liked. Obviously, Halle Bailey playing Ariel is so good. That's what everyone seemed to say when this first came out. And I was relieved to find that was the case. Her voice, the powerhouse voice, but also the characterization she brought to it in the way she moved, the gestures. She's she's a better Ariel. She's a more interesting Ariel beyond even that voice. I also liked Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. Uh, I was afraid she might try to be too funny, but she nicely nods to the characterization of the original Ursula and Pat Carroll's vocal performance as well. I really thought she was a highlight. Ursula, one of my favorite Disney villains of all time. So that was a high bar for me. So for Melissa McCarthy to meet that, I was happy. Um, And yeah, beyond that, I had some nitpicking. Maybe we will get to more of them. We can talk about the the visual darkness that everyone else discussed that was a problem. But um, yeah, I think that's helpful, Catherine, to think about these as entirely separate entities that are more riffs on those originals than trying to match them in some way. That's helpful for me. Yeah, I think Melissa McCarthy was a highlight for me, too. And I, I appreciated the addition of her backstory. I mean, I feel like it um, in some ways like enhanced and gave that character, even though, I, again, I agree, Ursula is one of the better Disney villains. I really enjoyed what Melissa McCarthy did as a character yeah. as well. I liked her performance. I actually did like Eric's backstory song, his kind of I want song, I'm looking for this girl song. The way that it was staged didn't work for me. And so I think a a big chunk of it was the songs, barring the rap, which we shall uh, keep nameless from here on out. Um, (laughs) Barring that one song, I did really appreciate some of the additions to this because it felt like it was giving some, some more character depth to these characters um, what I didn't like was the way that most of them were staged. The version of Under the Sea in this movie is very good, but most of the other songs, including Eric's I, I Want Something and I Can't Have It song, um, tended to be a little bit flat, almost as though like everything was was performed in front of a green screen. And Josh, you mentioned that these feel almost like stage renditions. I was actually thinking about this. This feels like a Broadway version of The oh, Little okay. Mermaid. And that would work for me if there had been kind of that physical sense and presence of a Broadway stage around it. Um, Because for the most part, with the exception of Under the Sea, I wasn't really getting that sense of presence either. It didn't feel like it had any gravity to it. There's a flatness, I think, that if you were in a theater would not be there, obviously, because you'd have the dimensions of the stage and the prop designs and all that. But yeah, when presented that way on the screen, I'd agree there's a certain flatness to some of those numbers. Which is a real shame because Halle Bailey's voice deserves so much better of a showcase. She's so incredible in this. Yeah. Definitely. I hope that she will continue in the genre. And I do. I have to join in the props for Under the Sea. The way in which that was shot, I was mesmerized. And I don't think that I felt that way about sort of the staging um, of, of something I think since I saw like the first Avatar in 3D, like just in the way, um, you know, 
they relied a lot on the Alvin Ailey dancers to like do the dances in real life. And they kind of took their movement um, and made it in, you know, use the computers and post-production to make it what it was on screen. Um, so I feel like that production probably really sang probably because they used real dancers. And then we're moving from that to um, the backstage. But yeah, I visually, I, I thought Under the Sea was, it was stunning. And I wish all of the musical interludes could have had that same level of gravitas. All right, so let's put the TC lens on this, The Little Mermaid. One thing that came to mind for me in the context of this story is the idea of Christian obedience. I mean, obviously, obedience is a crucial part to the narrative here, right, with Ariel rebelling against these strictures that are set forth by her father, King Triton, played by Javier Bardem. And she's seeking out the human world. She falls in love with a prince. All of this is going against the rules that her father has set for her. Just generally, when I think of obedience from a Christian perspective, maybe a couple of things come to mind primarily. One is that obedience is regarded as a response, not an obligation that's initially demanded. It's more response, a gesture of thanks for the gift of grace, right? This is how we respond to that gift. And then the other thing is probably that it's recognizing obedience is often asked of us, um, and really from the Garden of Eden onward, for our good, for our health, for our well-being. There's a concern uh, for us that is beyond what seems to us the rules and the strictures. There may be a greater concern for our flourishing that's there. And I think there's a moment here where Bardem's King Triton even makes that argument to Ariel, right? I'm I'm doing this because I love you and because I want to protect you. It's it's for your own good. I don't know though. Is is he is he mimicking that sort of um, biblical sense of obedience, or is he just using that as an easy excuse? I, I'm curious, Catherine. How do you see this Little Mermaid standing alongside a, a Christian understanding of obedience? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing I thought about is that when we are obedient to God, God is not boxed in by human limitations of like, I mean, we really saw in the film that her dad, his sort of instruction was based on his own prejudices. And, you know, we can be grateful as Christians, like God is not going to ask us to do something from a place of like sin or wrong motivation that it, it really is for our good. And I would say where I thought maybe the idea of Christian obedience is maybe thinking about how we think about obedience maybe within Christian community amongst our own kind of structures um, and sort of the courage it can sometimes take to break out of like maybe the way you were raised in your community to think about certain things. And as you grow in Christ, how your mind shifts and changes. And then what does that feel like when sort of the people that you were raised around and have these certain beliefs that they've instilled in you when you feel like you are sort of transgressing those so those boundaries. And so I would say I don't really, the King Triton as God, I don't think is very successful just because he is not good. I mean, he does come around, <laughs> he does come around in the end. But I mean, I would say like in that instance, like I just know that God would never ask us to do something like that. Um, and I think even in instance of like scripture, like I'm thinking Abraham and Isaac, where he asked, Abraham to do something really hard and very, um, I think that most of us would say is like sinful to kill another person. Um, mm -hmm. He doesn't follow through with it and then provides um, another resource that it is more of a, um, do you trust me? Do you love me? Um, do you 
um, are you thankful enough for the gift of the son that you would o- obey um, this request? And I, and then I think, I don't know. Yeah. I also think just in terms of discernment and wisdom and how do you know those things and those boundaries. So I would just say, I don't know that King Triton as God, the father works, but I do think a lot about how we are maybe not aware of how much cultural and communal things affects our positions of what is actually Christian. And then as we grow and we start to see those things and those structures and hierarchies, and we choose differently because of the calling or the movement of the Holy Spirit, I can be very sympathetic to an Ariel or Eric because it's hard. Like it's hard to go against, you know, this, you know, they made it seem lovely and, you know, it it ended up in just um, really beautiful and rose and flowers for them. But oftentimes our real life experience, that's not how it ends up when we, have sure. to like buck our communities in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? Where are you at with us? Catherine, I feel like you articulated something that I've been thinking about with regards to this movie specifically for the last week. So Little Mermaid was one of those movies that was not expressly banned in my house, but it was not a movie that we watched. And a lot of that was because of that theme of rebellion and that theme of knowing better than your parent. And I think that the idea of obedience to God being for your own good and in response of to something good, I think is the crucial piece here. God's love is not punitive. It's grace-filled. And so Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac and then being given that out, like that's not a punishment for him not being able to follow through on something. That's an act of grace. And with Triton, so much of what he's doing is trying to draw those boundaries around Ariel out of fear, and God's love is not full of fear. So I do think that I I see in some communities that same approach towards Disney movies that Triton actually expresses to (laughs) Ariel, um, because there is that sense of fear of the outside world, and there is that sense of, I want to protect my child from something that's not good for them. And in some cases, those boundaries are really good things to have. I needed those boundaries when I was a kid. But then there's also grace and joy and love and life that you can get outside of a spirit of fear. And so the the analogy doesn't fully work for me, at least like 100% between Triton and Ariel and my own upbringing, because that's not 100% true. But I do see echoes of that. And I think a lot of that has to do with being willing to have that sense of obedience, even though you may not necessarily understand the command, like with Abraham and Isaac, but then also understanding that that obedience is going to be to something that does have your own best interests at heart. And I think in the case of Triton, he has Ariel's best interests at heart, but he also doesn't have all of the facts. Like he's he's not God, so he's not going to get it 100% right either. Yeah, that's good. And they're, they're limited interests, I would say, for her as well. I mean, as you said, Catherine, he does come around, but it is not until he sees the possibilities that are out there, ironically, alongside the very things he fears, right? I'm thinking of one of the, the final moments where we get this image, which is kind of cheesy, and it happens pretty suddenly in terms of the narrative, but it's potent in terms of what we're talking about, this image of these people next to the humans right in in the kingdom and there will be like a a mermaid sitting on a boat next to a fisherman or something right (laughs) and again it's it's sort of cheesily handled but in terms of ideas i think it shows triton that well here is a flourishing right for both groups 
um, because they have chosen something different than fear or violence that was previously how they would interact. And it actually took Ariel's disobedience to get there. And so it's almost as, as if he's understanding how what obedience and disobedience can actually mean depending on the end goal. Is it just because you're fearful and want to be protective or is your end goal to the, seek the flourishing of not only yourself and your immediate loved ones, but the general community? And if that's the case, then the rules might look a little differently and obedience might look a little bit differently, which I think is what we see there at the end. Yeah. I agree. And I want to say, I mean, um, to Sarah's point, my parents were similarly very strict about what we watched growing up. Like I didn't listen to secular music and we could not watch Nickelodeon unless my mom like watched the show and like pre-approved it. They were more flexible about Disney things. But I want to say that when parents do that, it does come from a good place. Like, so I don't want it to come across as like, oh, Triton was based on fear and our parents are fearful. Like there are (laughs) some sort of like, I do think you need, and I guess I also feel like this as I get older and like more and more, my friends have young children and they don't let them watch like Peppa Pig because she talks back to her parents too much. And so it is that same sort of thing. And there is something in that, that some of the things you observe or see or hear, they do influence you. So I do get the sense of like, I understand the instinct to protect, um, you know, children. But again, like at this point, Ariel's like a young adult woman, she, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, you. it's kind of like that thing where I, you know, I talk about like my mom and I talk about this all the time where I felt like I had very small boundaries um, when I was younger, but as I got older, they got bigger and bigger and bigger because they trusted my own wisdom and discernment. And I feel like to your point, Josh, that's like a key point I think missing from the Ariel King Triton relationship, at least early on in the, in the movie is that element of trust. Like, um, in the same ways I have instilled in these values in you and this sort of to know danger, to protect yourself kinds of, of those kinds of things and still an unwillingness to recognize, you know, she's just in a different stage of life. And I think even across our faith journey, I see echoes of that definitely a lot in Abraham's story of like, you know, maybe the first request (laughs) to wait is ignored. But then by the time we get to the Isaac um, situation, Abraham's faith is very different than what it was with Ishmael and Hagar. And so there is like something to be said about maturing in obedience and maturing in our faith and being more discerning in how we make those decisions. And so I think to me, that was like part of it. It's not like she's just rebelling for rebelling sake or like only that his sort of boundaries are based in fear. It's just that like, there's no room for her to grow and to your point to flourish. Well, there are references. This is something I don't know if it would have made better if they had spent more time on this, but there are references to when her mother was around and now this has all fallen on him and this is how he is responding and reacting. And it's as a disciplinarian, it's as a king, a ruler, right? That's that's kind of his default parenting style, you you feel. So so that's another wrinkle to all of this. He does as say well. as long as you live in my ocean, you have to live by my rules, though, which makes me wonder like, when is she <laughs> going to be considered a full adult? Probably never at this point. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. even the is it the seven seas, her sisters, right? Yeah. They're all still under his command. So yeah, where does uh, where does that end for Triton? That's yeah. a good question. <laughs> Is there anything else about this version you guys wanted to to touch on before we get out of here? 
I did think that the the cinematography for me was an issue. And it's not just that it's in the scenes where there are the sea caves that it's so dark. Um, there's even that scene in Prince Eric's study or his library yes. that is severely underlit. And I think this is just one of the frustrating things for me about these remakes is that they don't seem to be held or produced at the same standards as the originals in terms of aesthetic sometimes. And I don't know, I'm going back to that comparison to the live stage versions. I guess I didn't expect that either, but I did expect, you know, pretty great costumes because this is a production, you know, a theater theatrical production. I demanded that. So I, I kind of feel like it's fair to demand decent lighting in these movie versions as well. Does that seem fair? I mean, yeah. I wonder if it's like the automatic assumption is like, oh, we're trying to appeal to adults and their nostalgia. So it needs to be dark because like I just think about just like the aesthetic generally of like TV shows. And I, I feel like this is like a constant complaint I have of most things where it's like, why is it so dark? Like I literally <laughs> can't see. Um, yeah. Like I was watching Jack Ryan and I'm like, I have no idea what's happening in the scene. I'm just reading the closed captions because <laughs> It's so dark. And I just wonder if they just associate <laughs> darkness with adulthood. I'm like, where are the bright colors? Maybe. I don't know. I, I agree. I was like, why is it so dark? I don't get yeah. it. We should bring back the days when um, you could film nighttime scenes during the day and just slap a bright blue filter on it. And that would count. <laughs> <laughs> like, that would be more visually interesting, I think. Yeah, I agree. It, it feels like a very firm artistic choice. And it feels like the wrong one specifically because it's almost as though they're valuing something that appears to be something that is actually live action, even if there's a ton of CGI in it over the animation. Like we have to distinguish the two visually from each other. So we might as well try to make everything look completely and totally 100% realistic. And that means you're not going to be able to see anything at night in the ocean. And that really bums me out because I think that that speaks to a limitation of creativity where you can choose to be bright and colorful and expressive even at night, even underwater in a movie. It doesn't necessarily have to adhere to the same limitations that we have here in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really a contrast to the original because you just think of those yeah, popping that so bright. colors and even Ursula, you know, in her cave has, there's a richness to the colors there that are missing here. So, so maybe not a strength of this one. Well, thank you both for um, packing in two movies, essentially in one discussion here. I really appreciate that. Uh, Sarah, before you go, maybe tell us what's happening on Seeing and Believing that folks should know about your podcast. Yeah. So um, at time of recording, we will have just uh, reviewed Landscape with Invisible Hand and we're pairing that with Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. So spanning just about a century of cinema in a single podcast Impressive. episode, which should be really fun. Um, so yeah, we're covering new releases and watch list picks, something that one host hasn't seen on every single episode over at Seeing and Believing. Sounds good. And Catherine, uh, how, how's the PhD work going for you? Yeah, so school officially starts uh, Tuesday for me, August 22nd. Um, and yeah, so you can definitely prayers for that journey. It's always right. hard to like gear up for a new semester, but I'm looking forward to it. So thanks for having okay. me. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine with all that work, um, you have you don't have a lot of room for writing, but as usual, I might pester you um, to see if you could fit one or two things in here or there, if you don't mind. Yes. And I always love being on the podcast. So it's super, 
you know, it's a lot easier than writing out my thoughts. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll definitely, we'll have you back here as well. So <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Sarah. Take care Bye. of yourselves. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Think Christian Conversation today. Looking ahead, we have an exciting one planned that I wanted to give you a heads up about. Author, professor, and speaker Karen Swallow Pryor is a friend of TC, though she's not able to write for us as often as we'd like. It turns out Greta Gerwig is her weakness. We had Karen on the show a couple of years ago to talk about Gerwig's Little Women. Turns out she's a big fan of Barbie as well. And since we haven't discussed the blockbuster movie from the summer on the show yet, and given what a huge hit it's been, I thought, why not have a somewhat belated conversation with Karen about the movie? So look for that in a couple of weeks. Also coming up, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the next edition of the TC Movie Club. That's going to be Monday, October 23, to discuss horror. What is it good for? So watch your favorite spooky movie and then join us on October 23. You can sign up to get an email invite with a Zoom link at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. If you want to share some feedback about the TC podcast, you can connect with us on Twitter slash X. We're also on Facebook. And if you've understandably abandoned social media altogether, you can always email us tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basselin. I'm Josh Larson. Thank you so much for listening. Join us in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 